0: Thank you. potential and possibility discussions with fascinating people, designing a better tomorrow for all of us. I'm your host, Ira Pastor. Welcome everybody again to another episode of our show, bringing you another really fascinating guest today involved in creating a better tomorrow via his work. Uh, Today we have the honor of being joined by Professor Dr. Gordon Lauk, who is Professor of Biochemistry and Molecular Biology, University of Zagreb, Faculty of Pharmacy and Biochemistry, as well as the founder and CEO of Genos. Uh, a research intensive uh, small enterprise located in Zagreb, Croatia, with the core expertise in both molecular genetics and glycomics, uh, which performs contract research, analysis, services for numerous universities, hospitals, private individuals across Europe and overseas. Uh, Professor Lauk also is the chief science officer of glycanage, which is a company that has groundbreaking tests uh, that's involved in analyzing personal glycomes, glycobiomes, for insights in both health. Uh, wellness, and monitoring biologic age. Uh, Professor Lau graduated uh, with a degree in molecular biology at the University of Zagreb. Uh, he did his PhD in biochemistry there as well. Uh, got his postdoc training uh, in both the Institute for Medical Physics and Biophysics at Munster and at Johns Hopkins down the road here in Baltimore uh, since 1993. He's been on the faculty of pharmacy and biochemistry. Uh, and between 1998 and 2010, he's also been uh, a part-time university, Ustich School of Medicine, uh, where he founded a DNA laboratory for the idea of war victims. He also served as a vice dean for science between uh, 2001 and 2005. Extensively published, he's also the chair of numerous conferences, including the European Science Foundation Exploratory Workshop on Glycoscience, uh, as well as president-elect of the International Glycoscience Organization, and member of the steering committee for the European Glycoscience Forum. A lot of important things to get into him with uh, today. Uh, Dr... Professor Gordon Maluka,
1: welcome to our show thank you for the invitation you did your homework
0: you know it 's <laughs> a fascinating area, needless to say you know, i 've watched many <laughs> of your presentations where you know you 've described uh, the human glycobiome as um, while the most complex area of biology clearly one of the most neglected and then when I, you know I dove into sort of your several hundred publications there in the peer reviewed literature. You were involved in this back in the early 1990s. Um, Talk a little bit about how you chose the most complex area of human biochemistry as something to jump into at the very beginning of your career.
1: Yeah, so it's actually an interesting story. So I was a first-year undergraduate student, very ambitious. I was always always very ambitious. So I tried to persuade a local professor of biochemistry to let me work in his lab. And normally, you know, even I now don't accept the first year undergraduate students because they don't know anything. You don't want them in a lab. <laughs> so the guy told me, you know, okay, if you want to work in my lab, you have to bring me a brain of a calf, but in less than four hours after the calf was slaughtered. Said, oh gosh, that's difficult. How do you get the brain within four hours to the lab? But they managed somehow, so I got the brain, fresh brain to the lab. And then he told me, Okay, that was good. But now you have to homogenize the brain, meaning you take a small glass tube and a small glass piston, and then you just make it into the one mesh. And this took three days, eight hours per day. So after I spent three days, eight hours per day, just homogenizing that calf brain, he said, okay, now you can work in the lab. And go. the the lab was a glyco biology lab, so this is where I did my first glyco experience. So I think the the first lesson there is, you know, being smart is not enough. You have to work hard, and this is mostly how I also now choose my team members. You know, in addition to being smart, they have to be willing to work hard.
0: You know, if I could quote for a second, your um... Uh, your editorial uh, entitled Sweet Secret of Multicellular Life. Uh, carbohydrates have been at the center of human interest since the very beginning of civilization, uh, but we've only begun uh, recently to understand the importance of complex oligosaccharides attached to protein or the backbones. Uh, this is probably not surprising since branched structures of sugars make analysis of glycoconjugates significantly more challenging than either the analysis of linear DNA or protein sequences. And yeah, I mean, in my own experience in this space, going back a few decades myself, um, you know, people always talked about the infinite possibilities of the proteome. If you add the glycome on top of that, you're talking multiple, you know, infinites here. Um, could you please take us just on a little walk through generally what we refer to as the human Yeah, You know, we, we, we th- hear about uh, glycosylation of our proteins and the important for function. We see glycosylation of natural products and we'll get to digoxin in a little bit. Talk
1: about glycom in general,
0: uh, how it's everywhere in sort of the human
1: system. So if we think about biology yeah. all the way back to the beginning of the life, initially life was RNA based. Yeah. So we had only RNA which was performing both the function and holding the information. And then, Sometimes during the evolution, RNA kind of invented DNA to store the information in a more reliable way because they're, they're, it's double-stranded. It has a timidine instead of oral cells, so it's more stable. Yeah. And invented proteins to make a more variable structure because RNA is not very variable molecule, it's only four mm-hmm. nucleotides, it's four, four bases. It's very hard to make a different structures. So the proteins were invented. So the first evolution and evolution was nucleic acids, the second one were proteins. And then when we think about life becoming more complicated, so bacteria have approximately 5000 genes. Humans and similar organisms have 20,000 genes. And we are not only four times more complex than the bacteria. We are probably millions of times more complex. So to enable all this complexity, life had to find a way how to make a more complex structures than only proteins. Because each protein is defined by a gene. You have to have a sequence of nucleotides to make a protein. So there is alternative splicing, you can make some changes, but more or less protein is defined by the gene. And to change a gene, to change a protein, you have to change a gene. And you change a gene by random mutation. So not really, these things are moving slowly. And then life invented glycans. Glycans are chemical structures which are being attached to proteins. So they're a chemical part of protein. They have a covalent link to proteins. But the structure of a glycan is not encoded in a gene. Yeah. It's encoded in a network of dozens or hundreds of genes. So there is another layer of complexity. So not only the sequence of letters in the DNA which defines a protein, but interaction of multiple genes and their epigenetic regulation and the environment which make a decision, how will the glycan look like at the end? So it's another layer of complexity which enabled us to become much more diverse, so each our protein can now be multiplied in hundreds or thousands of different glycoforms. So the simplest glycoproteins, like immunoglobulins, which have only one glycosylation site, so two chains, so two sites, will split a single polypeptide sequence into hundreds of glycoproteins. So. If we talk about complexity of life, genes, human has around 20,000 genes, proteins maybe 100,000, maybe 200,000, but that's the order of magnitude. Glycoproteins 10, 100, or even more million different structures. So we should think about glycans as the ultimate layer of complexity, which is fine-tuning our biological functions. So analogy I like to make Is with cars. So we can have the very basic car, the cheapest version you can buy. More or less, you have a wheel, you have seats, and and then you have an engine and it moves. And then you can have the fanciest racing car. And this is the difference between a protein and a glycoprotein. So the basic protein can perform some functions. Glycoprotein is actually what makes life possible. Another analogy I like to make is with birds. No, birds are fascinating animals. They oh, yeah. survived when dinos, actually birds are dinosaurs, but evolved. So, if we imagine a bird without a single feather, it's still a bird. Yeah. It can eat, it can walk, it can see, but it cannot fly. And unfortunately today, Many scientists are doing research on this type of a model. So they take a bird without the feathers, take a protein without the glycans, and then study the function of a protein. Mm -hmm. You can do some good science, high quality science, but you will never understand the full function of a protein. So this is why we are still failing to understand being part of biology. Mm -hmm. Because many scientists are still ignoring protein glycosylation. And per your um,
0: 2015 paper, where, you know, you really do a major synopsis of uh, the human and glaucombe mechanisms of disease, uh, and you point out here that uh, there's been technological development to, you know, I would say get rid of the fear, let's say, that has existed for a long time, maybe why people haven't looked at those feathers. Uh, Obviously, we know a lot about genomics and proteomics and these tools. What are some of the tools that you've seen as, you know, the last couple of decades, you've been involved in this space. Talk about the tools that have evolved that have allowed you. Well, You've always been, <laughs> you, you've not been afraid of it, but a lot of people have been. Talk a little bit of some of the tools that have evolved alongside you, make things slightly easier when you're looking at these extremely complex glycum structures. Okay. So
1: um, I'm terrified of analyzing glycans. <laughs> we are still only scratching the surface. We are still, um, we can look. For example, today, at the composition of the total glycol. So take a tissue or take a protein, cut off all the glycans and look at at uh, the ratios of different structures. For individual proteins, maybe 10 of them, maybe for 10 proteins like alpha-anacetyl alpha glycoprotein, C3 complement, IgG, IgA, IgM, there are methods to look at the glycosylation. Uh, For majority of proteins, we still cannot do it. For majority of uh, membrane proteins, we still don't have methods how to properly study their glycosylation. Uh, Our sensitivity is still not good enough to go at a single cell level, and let alone the, the single protein in a single cell. So we are, when we compare to the genomics, we are in the 90s of the last century. So we can do some things, but most of the things are still not working. But what can be done today? One thing is, yes, we can look at the glycom of a tissue or a plasma or whatever fluid, and we can get a reliable composition of different glycan structures in a large number of people. So, for example, my lab already studied close to 200,000 people. Mm-hmm. So we can look how glycans change in the disease, uh, with different medicines and so on. Yeah. For some proteins, we can fish them out, like immunoglobulins or alpha one acid glycoprotein C3. And then when we fish them out, we can look at their glycosylation at the glycopeptide level. So what does it mean at the glycopeptide level? So we take the whole protein, we cut it in pieces, and then for each individual peptide which we generate, we look at it glycosylation because a protein can have a multiple glycosylation sites. So if you take all glycan, if you remove all glycans, then you lose the information about where is this glycan coming from on individual proteins. And yes, we can quantify them today. We still don't have tools to change them in a in a in, in a living system. But this is also changing actually. The Nobel Prize for chemistry this year was awarded to Caroline Bertozzi for developing a method to modify and study these glycans in, in, in a living cell. Mm-hmm. So definitely methods are being developed. We can do more and more today. But, you know, just think about how much the field of genomics have changed in a decade. Yeah. from From... Thinking about the individual gly- genome being nearly impossible, to now it's commercially available for hundred two hundred dollars. You can get all letters in your genome and reasonably quickly. Or with the Oxford Nanopore, you go in the middle of nowhere and sequence <laughs> something yeah. you collect in the nature. Nice. So I think within the next few decades we'll see a similar change in the glycomics. So glycomics will become widespreadly used. It will enter the clinics, and I think very soon it will be studied much more than the genes or the proteins.
0: You mentioned um, IgG, immunoglobulin G, and you've published uh, extensively on uh, glycosylation um, in this area, both aging, disease, homeostasis, um, the ability to, you know, minor changes to the glycome affecting either a pro or an anti inflammatory uh, type phenotype. Talk a little bit about IgG, if you would, and, and, and why this has been such an important... And, and we'll get we'll get to glycan age in a bit, but talk a little bit just about IgG and why this has been really so, core to your to work.
1: So immunoglobulins yeah. are one of the main weapons of the immune system in most animals. Different types of immunoglobulins exist in majority of animals. But here, there is one imperfection, and that is that all this recombination of the segments of immunoglobulins, which generate these so-called hypervariable regions, which recognize the foreign molecules, happen very early in life. So you define your repertoire of B cells relatively early, and then only you can only fine-tune it with a somatic hypermutation. So you generate a sequence, which will eventually recognize an antigen. But antigen can be a virus, can be bacteria, can be a food we eat or something we inhaled. So our immune system has to make a decision what to do with that antigen later. So after the protein sequence is already defined and the gene is more or less formed, the decision what to do with that molecule has to be made later. And this is where glycosylation comes in the game. So antibodies have two domains. One domain is so-called FAB or fragment antigen binding. Okay. It binds to an antigen with kind of two hands. And then there is a constant domain called FC or fragment crystallizable, it's, it's a historical name, which then decides to which effector mechanisms will this antibody lead. Effector mechanisms are other proteins, other cells, which will bind to that antibody and then either activate a mechanism to kill a bacteria or activate a mechanism to kill a virus-infected cell or decide to ignore that antigen. And often we see people who have antibodies which can be disease-causing, which can be allergy-causing, but people have no symptoms. They have no symptoms because these antibodies are silenced by a type of glycosylation which inactivates these effector functions. Mm-hmm. So glycosylation of antibodies is a sophisticated mechanism which fine tunes antibodies for their function. And this is something what pharma industry have realized slightly over a decade ago. Yeah. You know that there are many of those so called smart drugs. So wonder drugs, mm-hmm. molecules, which, which solve the problems, and mostly they're antibodies. So you develop antibody for a specific target, and indeed, uh, a well, uh, the good antibody can actually eliminate a disease. You can kill two more and all the metastases. Yeah. But most of antibodies today on the market have wrong glycosylation. They don't have an optimized glycosylation. And recently the whole new series of so-called glyco-engineered antibodies are coming to the market. you have more or less the same antibody recognizing the same targets, but which is 100 or even more than 100-fold more effective because it has the proper glycan. So glycosylation, both in the pharma industry, so making better monoclonal drugs, or in, in our own biology, is essential for regulating immunoglobulin function.
0: And while we're... Um... Oh, we're on the topic of the immune system, Uh, say a few words, because during COVID, you published some papers on uh, the glycolex layer uh, of our cell membranes, which we just talked about adaptive immunity there. Here we have a very interesting part of our uh, innate immune system that has uh, protective properties that you you published on as well. Just just say a few words about that as well, in terms of sort of this other layer of immune response where uh, the this, glycogen comes
1: in. This is actually the first level of our immunity. Yep. So uh, we all know what is the lipid bilayer. The lipid bilayer is a kind of uh, membrane which covers the cells. So yep. it's, uh, this is what we learned about in school. Sure. But when you look at the microscope, lipid bilayer is a tiny little lane which is covered with a 50 to 100 full thicker layer of glycans, mm-hmm. the glycocalyx. And this is the real functional barrier between the cell and the environment. And this barrier is particularly important on our mucosas. So of a respiratory tract, of a digestive tract, it's protected with this thin thin layer of uh, uh, glycans called mucins. And uh, there are very nice videos, which can be found on the Internet, showing how uh movement of this mucin is eliminating pathogens from the surface of our uh, respiratory tract. So our nose is a fantastic bioactive, chemically active mask, which is trapping the the pathogens, both biologically and chemically, and then removing them from our respiratory tract. But a couple hundred years ago, humans started to heat their homes. So evolution n- didn't have time to react to heating. And a problem with heating is that the relative humidity of heated air is very low because the the amount of water which can be dissolved in the air is correlated with the temperature. Mm-hmm. So uh, if the, the The easiest way to see that is, for example, if um uh, during spring and autumn, when the nights are cold and we go to our car, it will be covered with water. Mm-hmm. Why is it covered with water? Because the air heats much faster than the surfaces, and the the hot the warm air contains much more water than the cold air. Mm-hmm. so the air coming close to our car will cool down and the water will get out of the air. It will condensate and form little droplets. And the opposite is true when we heat the air. So even if it is raining, it can be 100% humidity outside, but if it is cold, zero, one degree, and we get that air into our room and heat it to 22, 23, 24 degrees of Celsius, Mm -hmm. the relative humidity, Will fall to 10-15%. This is very dry air, and then when we inhale the air, the air is taking water from our nose, from our throat, from our lungs, and it's drying them out. So we all know that feeling if we go in the, if we sleep in a in some kind of highly air-conditioned hotels without have a good humidification. Uh, you wake up completely dry nose and this is destroying your mucosal barrier, which is removing the pathogens. And this is one of the key reasons why the respiratory pathogens are seasonal. We see waves of infection, usually when the temperature changes quickly. Because our body can adapt to low humidity. You know, people live in a desert, but it takes time. You need enough water and then your mucosa barriers adapt to low air humidity. So when there is a rapid change in air humidity, meaning it becomes colder, I turn on heating, humidity in my bedroom goes down. This dries out my mucosa. And this is one of the key reasons why we have all these pandemics. And actually, I was heavily promoting it at the beginning of the COVID pandemics. Just humidify the air. No, just evaporate the water. Be careful to breathe the humidified air and then there will be much less respiratory infection. Because if you go to places like um, uh, the tropical areas, they don't have influenza and uh, and other respiratory diseases. You go there for a week and you enjoy how you don't have any respiratory problems there. Just mm-hmm. because humidity. We don't think about humidity.
0: Fascinating. Really fascinating. Um, Gordon, one other place I wanted to go before we get into some of the uh, uh, commercial initiatives and so forth. Um, a couple months ago, you published a paper um, called the uh, titled The Dynamic Brain and Glycome. And here you introduce the reader to the neuroglycome. Uh, and uh, if we're not getting as complex, you know, here we have a now the inc- incredibly complex nature of the human brain, a barrier system, and then of course all the biology, as you were just mentioning, that uh, we think about, and we're adding the glycome onto this, not just in disease and aging here, but you know the very early days of you know us in our mothers' wombs. You know that glycome very important for putting that brain together in the first place, uh, holding it together. Uh, talk a little bit about um, these early days of the newer glacombe, but but say a few words about your work here because I think
1: this is fascinating. Yeah, so th- this is extremely terrifying part of our work because <laughs> yeah, the brain yeah. itself is terrifying and then you add the glycans to that, it's even yeah. more terrifying. So um I think glycans are important in all biological processes which evolves after the appearance of multicellular life and definitely brain is one of them. And uh, alternative glycosylation is something which can regulate many Processes and I think this was not mentioned in a paper, but one of the first demonstrations of alternative glycosylation was on a protein called Notch, where extension of the so-called o codes is actually activating or deactivating the protein. Mm-hmm. So uh, we are used to think about phosphorylation as the way to activate or deactivate the protein, but this is just zero one. You either phosphorylate or not, for glycosylation you have something like uh, tuning of activity. So by putting different structures, something can be more or less active. And this is very important both during brain development but also during normal brain function, during the memory formation and so on. But we know close to nothing about it. So what we are trying to do at the moment and we haven't even actually published these papers yet, we are trying to map which structures are present, how does they change during development, during evolution, and the different p- parts of the brain. And there are some fascinating things, like, for example, and this is still unpublished, if you look at the older brain regions, so parts of the brain which evolved a long time ago, mm-hmm. they will have mostly glycosylation, which is evolutionary older. So something which would be... Um, more similar in a single cell eukaryote than in a multicellular eukaryote. So as evolution was progressing, as the brain was developing, it was acquiring more modern glycans on evolutionary scale. So it's um, that will be a huge area for research, mm-hmm. but it will require development of new methods. So with, with the current methods we really cannot do much, but with time, you could actually tackle these questions and try to understand how and why is this is really important.
0: And, and apropos of that, um, you uh, are a co-director as well as I was on the steering committee of, of the Human Glaucoma Project. Um, talk a little bit about sort of the um, the ecosystem of folks that you're putting together here. Clearly, this is, as you were saying, this is sort of like the 1990s and and, and really ramping up uh, because there's a lot of work to be done here, but talk a little bit about um, what has been involved in assembling some of these folks that are are less terrified than <laughs> than the rest of the world in really uh, pushing the glycome forward in terms of so, our understanding
1: so the Human glycome project is kind of uh, copying the Human genome project, just the challenge is much larger. And I like to compare it, you know, if a human genome project was putting human on the moon, human glycom project is putting human on Mars. Mm -hmm. It's way more challenging. But we try to um, work together to support each other and to approach the um, instrument providers, reagent providers together and try to persuade them to develop tools which we need. Mm -hmm. Because now for somebody to develop an instrument, they need to see there is a demand for the instrument. For somebody to start developing good kits, there has to be people who are buying kits and who Mm -hmm. are developing kits. So we are trying to coordinate this activity on a global level. So all continents, everybody is included. And actually we try to keep regular meetings of this Human Glycom Project meetings. And I think it's making good progress because we are raising the awareness of the importance, Mm -hmm. especially with the key decision makers. You know, public comes the last because this is too complicated for general public to understand. But we are talking to governments, to different decision-making bodies, to editors of some journals and trying to explain to them like comics is the next big thing and then by working together we can really understand biology much better and it it is working it's it's uh, making progress it's it's extremely challenging and there's a lot of work to be done but i think you know i'm a fee- in a field for 30 years and maybe for a last decade i really see things moving faster and i think it will keep accelerating so this field will explode within the next decade definitely
0: Talk a little bit, uh, if you would, about glycan age, because, you know, this is um, initially connected to what you were talking about in terms of the IgG uh, function changes, pro-inflammatory, anti-inflammatory properties, and so forth. I've seen a lot of presentations with, with your daughter, um, you are sort of leading the charge here. Um Talk just a little bit about what glycan age tells us today about health, wellness, aging, and then clearly, I mean, based on everything we're talking about, you clearly could have a thousand products that potentially come out of this uh, in, in all the different ways the glycan, glycome goes. Say a few words about uh, what's going on here.
1: So, initially, this was a problem for us because we were looking to people with diseases and healthy controls and comparing them. And then we noticed that if we don't match the controls and patients perfectly for age, we always see a difference. So people usually, you know, patients are a little bit older than your controls, you collect controls in a different way. And whenever we had the patients and controls that were not of perfectly matched age, we saw the same type of a difference. And then when we did our first, large population cohort, meaning several thousand people. Then we realized glycans change a lot with age. And this was um, 2013 when we initially published it and at that time we had an idea because my lab is also a forensic genetic lab. So we were also thinking maybe we could use this model of uh, age from the drop of blood Mm-hmm. to determine what could be the age of a person who left a trace on a crime scene. So, you know, you find a drop of blood. Is this some kind of uh, kid who was doing some uh, uh, naughty things and, and and break something? Or is there a professional criminal who was uh, breaking in a specific location? So, we developed this model of predicting chronological age from, from glycans. And this was before the methylation age was. Uh, developed. In the meantime, methylation age clock was developed and it is more accurate for chronological age than glycans, much more accurate. Glycans were guessing chronological age plus minus nine years. Mm. Then we learned that the difference between the glycan age and the chronological age is best explained with a lifestyle. Okay. So people living unhealthy lifestyle would have a higher glycan age than people living healthy lifestyle. And then we literally published over 100 papers showing that um, the way we eat, our physical activity, even our psychological well-being, different diseases, they all make glycans look older than your ecological age. While healthy lifestyle, uh, moderate physical activity will make your glycans look younger in your age. And then, a couple of years ago, we developed this uh, glycan age as a product, which we believe can be a very good personal navigator to what we are doing. Because we know glycans respond to our lifestyle. For example, if I gain weight, my glycans go up, mm-hmm. become older. If I lose weight, they become younger. Because You know, majority of us more or less know what is healthy and what is not. No, they're healthy habits, they're unhealthy habits. But we do not live healthy. We don't change our unhealthy habits, primarily because, you know, if I'm doing something unhealthy, you know, the bill that I will have to pay for that will come in two or three decades. So, you know. I can do something today and then I will fix it tomorrow or day after tomorrow or a year after tomorrow. But if there would be a faster feedback, if I can measure effects of what I'm doing in a more real-time scale, and we talk about when we talk about glycans it's a couple of months, it's not on a daily basis, it's a long-term measure, but if I change something with my lifestyle today, in a few months I will see what is going on with my glycans. And like an age, I think they have over 15,000 customers so far, and we see that motivation of people is really improving. So they're trying to live healthier. And there is another aspect that all these healthy recommendations, what is healthy and what is not healthy, is based on a standard human. So we take all people look what they do, and then do statistics and say, this is good, this is bad. Mm. But there is no standard human. Standard human is imaginative com- uh, concept. Each of us is different, and we all different respond in a different way to food, to exercise, to stress, to whatever. And, and we did a cool study, it was published only a couple of uh, weeks ago, we had thousand people all around Europe on a low calorie diet for two months. Yep. This was really inhumane. I think they put them on eight hundred calorie a day. That's crazy. Mm. That's so sweet. they lost <laughs> an average ten kilos in two months and their glycans improved. But nobody can live like that. That that's right. a torture. That's not 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 life. Yeah. So they put them on five different maintenance weight. So they decided these are five different diets, try whether it's works for you so they were hoping to find the best diet and what we learned is that each of the diets were good for some people they were not good for other people so there is no universally good diet so one has to find a diet which is perfect for him or for her and this is also where glycans can help so you try one type of a diet See the effect. If there's no effect, you try another type of a diet. There's also extremely important interaction between the microbiome and the glycome and a diet, because a diet is also by large determined by our microbiome, and the microbiome is determined by diet. Mm-hmm. So this three-edge interaction is what actually makes us healthy or unhealthy. And with glycans, you can actually monitor that. And currently, we have a couple of projects globally where we try to use glycans as a readout for microbiome intervention. So you try to fix your microbiome. Let's see how your glycans will respond to that.
0: While, while we're on that um, topic, I, I, and you, you mentioned the, the torturous diet, but I, I was wondering, uh, Gordon, could you just say a few words about your paper on uh, stressing? And uh, the professional soldier
1: study you did (laughs) from so this is this is nearly three decades ago. It's a cool paper, though. Yeah, Uh, yeah. So it's so the methods we had then were really primitive. So it's very hard to um, interpret what did we measure then using today's standard. But this was during the war in 1990s we had in Croatia, and I was then just finishing my studies, and it was extremely difficult to focus on science when there is war around because we all need to feel that our work has some kind of meaning and importance so then i switched to studying uh, effects of stress because war is the ultimate stressor and this is often it's often forgotten how the psychological stress can be for health and then we looked we were just profiling the, the plasma of people who were actually exchanged from uh, from a concentration camp. So they were imprisoned after one major battle. They were put in a horrible torture. It was, it was a really bad place. Yeah. And then they were released after a couple of months. And we looked at the changes. And then we saw uh, one drastic change with the protein we called thresin, Uh we never found it again because we never had such a such a horrible cohort where people were really so much um, tortured. But with time, we did a more sophisticated analysis of people under stress, even animals under stress. And indeed, what we are thinking will have effects on our molecular composition, which at that time, and we are talking about the 90s, was considered to be heresy because hardcore biochemists would not accept that thinking something will change your molecules. But, you know, in thinking, are molecules. They're molecules signaling, they're hormones being produced. So it's not unimaginable. And now we have a lot of evidence showing that what you think is really strongly affecting your immune system. And there is a basic biology behind that. It's a, it's the a called so-called um uh, fight or flight response, mm-hmm. which exists in all mammals. And and the idea is when you are in danger, and we have to think it's it's you know, I, I'm a small rodent and there is a big cat or something like that. So I could either fight or run away. And uh there is a whole set of biological mechanisms which get activated in that situation which are improving my probability to survive. There are changes in blood clotting, changes in the blood pressure, changes in circulation, uh, a lot of energy goes to, to the muscles to the sensory system but this energy has to be taken away from somewhere. And they're taken away from the, from the systems which are not needed in the next five minutes yeah. when it is decided that I will, whether I will survive or I will be eaten. And these systems are a digestive tract, reproductory tract and immune system. Mm-hmm. So the, the psychological stress, the, the fear of being eaten shut down the immune system, reproductory system and a digestive system. And it's okay. for five minutes, we really don't need them. But the problem with the human society is that we are under stress because not because somebody wants to eat us, but because I'm late, I don't like my boss, my boss doesn't like me, my salary is not high enough. Uh, I I don't know, whatever. And we continuously activate this stress response mm-hmm. We shut down our immune system. Reproductory system, digestive system. And if you look what is happening now after two and a half years of pandemics, we have way more people dying of different diseases. Yeah. We have a huge decrease in the number of babies being born. So all these consequences of stress are now being visible on a population level. And this is something we also saw after the war we had in Croatia.
0: Gordon, I want to, um, one of the I want to go with you, um, and I know we're coming up against a, a stop for you at the, at the top of the hour, but I, I really like to ask about, and, and, and once again, I apologize going back a couple of decades, but you published this paper on the JOX and derivatives um, as tools for glycobiology back in 2003. Um, I, I'm a pharmacist by undergraduate training. I spent most of my career in the pharmaceutical industry, which I like to point out was, you know, built on the backbone of, of natural products. Um, and obviously, Digitalis and fox and all that goes back to the over 100 years now to the cardiac glycosides and, 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 and that whole area of, of pharmacognosy. Um, and again, just like we're talking about, you know, the, the fear of glycosylation, of, uh, like all this stuff, a lot of natural products, um, from what I remember, sort of get left on the the, uh, the lab bench because of some of these unique glycosylation patterns. Uh, it could be great drugs, but we just, you know, have a limited bandwidth to develop them in that context. Um, talk a little bit about how some of your tools and some of what you're doing, and, and maybe at the, at the faculty of pharmacy and the work you do there, um, you see the ability of some of these new tools to help be sort of reawakening a new generation of these complex natural products that come with these unique uh, glycosylation patterns. So
1: just the first word, first few words about this DIG technology we were using in the 90s. So the idea was to make tools, how to measure activity of different proteins binding to lectins. And, and the digoxin, digoxigenin, yeah. was a tag which Berger-Mannheim developed to label different right. molecules. Because mm-hmm. people mostly use biotin, but the problem with biotin, there is endogenous biotin which is causing trouble. So they made the dig tag, and then I was trying to develop, I was developing tools with the dig tag, and actually we did develop pretty nice uh, tools for that time, but as you say, this was 30 years ago. Now about these um, complex um, bioproducts, I think there is a huge future for that, because for a long time, uh, the, the medicine was ignoring these complex polysaccharides, because they were undigestible. And we said, you know, you take them in, you're not digesting them, they go out, they don't do anything. But this was the period when we were actually ignoring the microbiome. Yeah. And now we know that our life depends on our microbes. And I think the major, not majority, but a large part of health problems people have in the Western world particularly in U.S. are caused by the ultra-processed food. Because ultra-processed food is something which you can put on a shelf of a supermarket and come and buy it a year later and eat it. So if there is a food standing on a shelf for a year and bacteria don't eat it, meaning there is something which kills bacteria in there. So we put all different preservatives to kill bacteria. The problem is when we eat that food, we also eat these chemicals which kill bacteria. And then we kill our own bacteria. So our microbiome gets reduced to the small number of species which can survive all these preservatives. Mm -hmm. And the other thing is this ultra-processed food has a very limited number of ingredients. No, just, just the basic things, some, some starch, some fructose, syrup, or yep. whatever. While we need diversity in our microbiome to protect us from foreign bacteria. Because the biggest threat which can happen to us is some bad bacteria coming into our digestive tract and start m- multiplying. And the first line of defense is from that it's our own bacteria, because our bacteria do not want competitors to come and take their food, yep. so they fight. But we have no ideas which kind of uh, foreign bacteria will come in. And what is the common knowledge? You know, if you go in India and you drink any water from from anywhere, you get sick. Yeah. But the local people, they don't get sick because they have their own microbiomes, which protect them from bugs in that food or drink. And and we don't. And the idea of having diversity in the food is that this diversity in the food we eat is promoting diversity in bacteria in our digestive tract. So, And this is where all these strange products, which were never formally accepted in medicine because we had no idea how they work, come into play. Because if you have good complex polysaccharides, which bacteria can eat, you will cultivate some species of bacteria. And then you have another one for another species, and then you have a healthy diverse microbiome, and then some bad bugs come in and they just got eliminated by your your own bacteria. So I think there is a huge potential in these um, dietary supplements based on different Polysaccharide material which has not been properly explored and actually it was it was treated very negatively even by the glyco glycoscience community. Yeah. So we as a glyco field were against all these um, different glycan products because the idea was, you know, you can't digest them. They will not do any good to you. Th- this was wrong. Right.
0: Yeah, it's uh it's been a fascinating history, and I, I really—it's just refreshing to uh, to see you at the epicenter of all this now. Uh, uh, over the you know the last couple of decades, as these tools have evolved and sort of leading the the glycoscience space forward. So, I mean, this has been really uh, enlightening, and it's just been, it's been a pleasure listening to this journey and, and wishing you really the best with all of it as you move continue to move it forward. Um, for for everybody, um, again, that's been that's going to be listening to uh, this show across our various podcast networks or watching on the YouTube channel. Again, you've been listening to Dr. Gordon Lau, Professor of Biochemistry and Molecular Biology at the University of Zagreb, Faculty of Pharmacy and Biochemistry, founder of Genos, Chief Science Officer of Glycan Age, and co-founder of the Human Glycome Project. Gordon, um, I wanna thank you for taking the time out of your schedule to come talk to us for a little while about all these topics. Uh, obviously, thank you for everything you do to to move Glycoscience forward in this way. And as we say on our show, uh, thanks for helping to create a better tomorrow via what you're doing. It's just really very impressive.
1: So thank you for the invitation. I have to say I'm deeply impressed with uh, how well prepared you are and how old papers you read. So, I. Uh, They were impressive. You think it was interesting.
0: (laughs) Absolutely. Well, we'll definitely do a follow-up. It was really great to see you.
1: Okay.